Welcome to The Common Round. Medical education for medical students by medical students. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And joining us today is our executive producer, Gautam. Now, I think before we go ahead, if you have missed or don't really understand the clotting cascade or the physiology of the clotting pathway, please go back to our previous episode and have a listen because it is so fundamental to our subsequent two talks that, that you understand what we're talking about. So Andy, do you want to tell the audience what we're talking about today yeah so today's topic will be on thrombophilia or the increased likelihood of the body forming a clot is that correct yeah so philia likes thrombus you know the body likes forming clots how many different types of thrombophilic conditions are there or you know what are some broad subheadings for us to learn? i wouldn't know exactly how many there are out there in the world but there are mainly two broad categories we can look into yeah. right so there's acquired as well as hereditary yeah there's also idiopathic as well um oh, but geez. we can um yeah. idiopathic obviously means that you know it's not clear what's going on but we can maybe spend five seconds on it afterwards once we talk about the key types first so you mentioned acquired what are some of the conditions that can predispose you to developing acquired conditions so i guess acquired by definition means that you're pretty healthy something happens in your life it's not related to your let's say necessarily to your genetics so it's not like you've had these bad sort of genetic risk factors but something happens Mm. and then you develop a clot mm. right what are some of those risk factors for developing a clot so we've got age as a risk factor mm. so apparently increasing in age increases your risk of developing mm -hmm. you know thrombophilia later on surgery uh, i guess from ex probably the excess damage and the um just the process of surgery itself might predispose you to actually get clots trauma also falls under that category so like fractures and stuff and then you're bed bound for so long and then you maybe develop a clot as a consequence mm -hmm. let's say with blood dyscrasias as well as neoplasms they mm. can apparently increase yeah. your risk what, and what's interesting is yeah. that with you know you mentioned neoplasm neoplasm is a fancy way of saying malignancies or cancers right yeah um with neoplasms the upper gi pathologies or cancers have a higher risk than other uh, pathological forms what about hormones and stuff like that are there any potential hormones definitely that can... i think one of the things when we learn about the combined oral contraceptive pills for females that they they say that it increases your risk mm. of clot and so definitely hormones play a play a role in it but also pregnancy as well which obviously relates to hormones as well you know progesterone mm. um particularly and let's say if a person's also bedridden as well let's mm. say in the hospital or let's say if they just have prolonged immobilization that also increases their risk yeah exactly mm. i guess this all comes down to virtuous tryout it's, it's so that. remiss of us not to mention yeah. this do you want to maybe say what virtuous tryout oh, includes um, there's it's like a triangle isn't yes. it? in each triangle it's in, in each point of the triangle there are a okay. potential risk let, let, let me give you this Go. I, I, okay, you just sprung this on me, but I'll, I'll try and remember it. So we've got problems with the blood flow. So hemostasis is yeah. one of them. You've got problems with the endothelium. So yes, the, or the, not just, oh, just the damage vessel in wall. general. Oh, yeah, damage okay. the vessel wall. So you mentioned there is vasculature damage, yeah. problems with blood flow, yeah. and also there's a tendency for clot formation. So that refers to genetic risk factor. Yep. So that's what it is. Virtuous blood triad. Flow, uh, so the tendency to form clot formations as well as the vessel. 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. Before we move on from acquire, acquire is really straightforward because the, you know you've been exposed to these potential risk factors like you know immobile immobility, injury, trauma. That's led you to develop a clot. There's one other thing that I think is classified under the heading of acquire, and that is antiphospholipid antibodies. What right? is that? That's really interesting. It's not really fully understood. It's when you have patients that develop these clots, and it's often associated with you know everything in in life is associated with lupus, but it's associated with <laughs> systemic lupus, erythematosus or other sort of connective tissue disorders. The mechanism of how this comes about is not well understood, but it's when antibodies have, um, are interacting with platelets, particularly platelet, uh, you know, phosphor, phospholipids, and that causes increased adhesion and aggregation of those platelets. And so that already starts predisposing into forming this primary hemostasis and probably subsequent to that secondary hemostasis. But it also in, potentially in, interferes with the function of protein S and protein C, which are anticoagulants in the body. So that's why it predisposes you. I think we should mention it because it does come up in terms of how, you know, if you're learning for exams, how important it is, probably not hugely important, but it's good to know mm-hmm. in case you, are, you suddenly come across it. Now, we mentioned there was idiopathic. Do you want to just quickly mention, you know, what percentage of these patients are actually idiopathic or what percentage are actually not? Like, let's say 10 to 20% of the idiopathic cases are later mm-hmm. to found to have actual cancers. Yeah. That, that's all I kind of know. That's about. pretty much, and 80% is actually genuinely potentially idiopathic but unfortunately in those smaller percentage they probably had malignancies which weren't detected at the time when when they developed this clot now this is the really interesting part of the talk so the hereditable yeah. components of actually having a thrombophilia isn't it so this is where genetics play an important role there's a couple of those couple of important conditions so should we start yeah. the most popular one or the most common one is um, factor 5 laden or it's called the activated protein c resistance oh that yeah that kind of gives away what causes it isn't mm. it so let's say factor 5 laden so if you cast back your mind to the last talk factor 5 is crucial to help factor 10 convert uh prothrombin to thrombin and one of the ways is protein c comes along and deactivates 5 mm. to mm. actually you know prevent this cascade from going out of control. But unfortunately, in factor 5 laden is that the factor 5 is resistant to an inactivation by protein C. So it's either called, so the disease is thus called either factor 5 laden or activated protein C resistance. Yeah, they're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. And it's a point mutation, if I'm not mistaken, that does it. Somehow, maybe the amino acid changes mm-hmm. and it makes them more... I don't think you need to know what amino acid exactly, but know that some mutation causes causes it to be much more resistant to, to deactivation. So then you're more likely to form pro-thrombin to thrombin as a consequence. And so thrombin then leads, leads, leads the way to clot formation so you mentioned protein c i'm sure protein c plays a role in other um, thrombophilic conditions as well are there any other roles that protein c and s play the the second condition we'll talk about is the protein c and protein s deficiency isn't it well why don't you walk you walk us through this one yeah sure so let's talk about protein c so we mentioned that let's step back a bit protein uh, protein c inactivates factor five and also factor eight Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it has this anticoagulant effect. So protein C deficiency, you can have either homozygous or heterozygous. So homozygous meaning that you have two forms of the defective gene or heterozygous, you have one pair. Let's talk about heterozygous because that's the more common. You have type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is when you have decreased protein C levels, right? Okay. So you still have some protein C, it's just not as much. Whereas type 2, you have decreased protein C activity. So one okay. is about activity and one is about level. So type one is about level, type two is about activity. And mutations may affect either characteristics of protein C. You can also have acquired protein C deficiency where you had this massive, you know, 
disseminated coagulation and so then you've used all your protein c as well but that's not really inherited that's due to other conditions but mm. inherited you have type 1 type 2 belonging to the heterozygous sort of um, presentation an interesting way of knowing if you have protein c deficiency uh, using indirect means is that if you give someone warfarin so we mentioned before in our last talk that warfarin depletes protein c and protein s first before it affects all the actual clotting factors so if you give someone protein c you're going to deplete protein uh, sorry if you give someone and warfarin you're going to deplete protein c and so that increases the risk of clot formation and so in these patients they can develop warfarin associated necrosis because clots are formed that have caused ischemic damage to the tissue oh, and patients nice. yeah patients with protein c deficiency at a, at a much higher risk of developing this sort of disorder in, in fact one third of patients will develop this disorder do you want to maybe mention protein s protein s is crucial as a cofactor to help protein c do its job and so as we mentioned before, it's, it could be a hereditary condition, and there's also three types. So the first type is, is there's a decrease in the free and total protein S levels. And the second type there is a decrease in the protein S activity. And the third type is there's a decrease in the free protein S levels. And so once again, it could also have actually acquired component as well. Um, one of them could be the DICs. The other one could be the liver diseases. Mm. So once again, these, these guys are synth synthesized in the liver. So if there's a liver problem, odds are that you could have problems with the protein. You can have an acquired form of it as opposed to a genetic mm. component. What about antithrombin? Antithrombin is another important... So um, this is the third condition we're going on Yeah. Today. So antithrombin deficiency. We mentioned yes uh, in the last episode that the antithrombin plays a crucial role in preventing the coagulation cascade going yeah. out of control. And so I guess if you have a deficiency in that, the body will be more likely to form clots. How does exactly that work again? So um, antithrombin inactivates thrombin, right? But in the presence of heparin, as we mentioned, which is naturally produced by endothelial cells, it becomes really active. So it starts getting rid of thrombin, so it stops the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. Mm -hmm. Now you can have two types of activity. So the trend that you see is type one is always related to level. So whenever you, whenever we mention protein S deficiency type one, it's got to do with the level of the proteins available. Whereas type two, as you see with all the other ones as well, affects activity. So type one is level, type two is activity. Again, in the case of antithrombin, you can have type one and type two as well. Mm -hmm. It's autosomal dominant as well, or it could come about as a consequence of urinary loss through the urine. So in the case of nephrotic syndromes, I'm sure we'll talk about nephrotic syndromes in, in when we talk about renal disease, but when you start losing a lot of proteins, you can lose a lot of these factors. And so that increases the risk of forming um, clots because you don't have the antithrombin. Unfortunately, if you plan to manage patients with this condition with let's say heparin or anything that targets activation of antithrombin it's not going to work because you just you might not have enough levels or its activity might be reduced so you might have to think about alternate anticoagulants that's about it for antithrombin but there's there's three more that i think we should talk about before we finish this okay. this topic so one of them would be the prothrombin mutation isn't it yes so apparently it's a nucleotide substitution at the prothrombin gene promoter region which increases the level of prothrombin which then will well if you've got more prothrombin i guess you will have more thrombin which forms which will then clear, make the fibrinogen to go into fibrin mm -hmm. and so make make clots isn't it yeah exactly and then you have elevated factor eight so we mentioned factor eight is really important for the conversion of via the intrinsic pathway the conversion of um, factor inactivated form of 10 to 10a yes and so yeah if you have um, elevated levels of factor eight you're more likely to convert fa activate factor 10 so you're more likely to then form more thrombin and more fibrin and so you're more likely to form a clot yeah you can have disorders of fibrinolysis as well where there's plasma 
antigen deficiency. If you guys are not sure what we mean by fibrinolysis, please go back and have a so listen to our... Fibrinolysis, the breaking down of the actual fibrin. Once the clots form, yep. exactly. Or you can have tissue plasminogen activator deficiencies as well. But, you know, they're not as common, so let's not spend too much time on it. Okay. So, Andy, there's two important topics that I think we should cover. Okay. One is, who's at risk of recurrence once you've had their clot managed? And... I think it's really important for us to talk about some laboratory components to this as well. So diagnosing it as well. Mm. But so who's at risk of recurrence? In terms of clinical factors, we look at when we try to assess somebody's risk of having a thrombophilia recurrence is active cancers, proximal deep vein thromboses or pulmonary embolus, the male gender, high BMIs and smoking. I think mm. they're all factors. They're some of the lifestyle risk factors. Mm. And obviously, if you have thrombophilia, unfortunately, that's your genetics, so you can't change that. So you, you know, you're at an increased risk of developing clots. But unfortunately, we don't really have any current diagnostic tools for you body researchers. This must, this could be something to to develop in the future. But there's no way of actually predicting the risk factors um, as as it is. And unfortunately, the laboratory markers for thrombophilia are not generally helpful in that sense either. Okay. You kind of you're really not sure who's at an increased risk of developing it, aside from those clinical risk factors. Should we talk about labs? Uh, this is my favorite part about okay. this entire talk is the labs because it's just so clinically important and so applicable as well let's talk about four key things let's talk about aptt APT. and i've got a great mnemonic for that okay let's talk about pt let's talk about inr and let's talk about mixing studies how does that sound sounds good so this shouldn't take us too long but maybe what does aptt stand for activated prothromboplastin time yeah aptt if i'm not mistaken and pt is prothrombo Prothrombin time. Prothrombin time. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, why do we care about those two? And to be honest, before I came into medicals, I had no idea. And to be honest, I was so ignorant about the importance of these two. But since we've studied hematology, I'm like, wow, this is actually, these two are really important. So let's talk about APTT. APTT and PT both measure, or well, one of them measures the intrinsic pathway and one of them measures the extrinsic pathway. Right? Yeah. And so it's a point where I, sometimes I can get them mixed up, but okay. do, do you have any ways for me to, to help Yeah, you? yeah. So if you have a look at the way APTT is spelled, there's two, two T's in there. For you sporty audiences out there, table tennis is normally played indoors. Well, yep. from, from the part of the world that we're from in Australia, it's usually played indoors, TT. So table tennis is yeah. indoors. So APTT measures the clotting factors that are involved in the intrinsic pathways, which intrinsic. are your... Ten, eight, yeah. Tenants, isn't it? Ten, 12, 11, 9, 8, and 10. If you're not sure what tenants is, have a listen to our previous, previous episode. That's another mnemonic for the intrinsic factors. We love mnemonics in, 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 in the common rounds because it, it's getting me through medical school. Yeah. Now, so if you have any disorders that affect intrinsic factors then it's going to show up in your aptt yes. so if you have a loss of those intrinsic clotting factors aptt which measures how long it takes for a clot to form would be increased if the intrinsic pathway is affected yes what about the extrinsic pathway what's the mnemonic for the extrinsic pathway which is pt pt right? so pt so i guess if we're going off the table tennis analogy pt is only has one t so i was asking so where do you play Tennis, essentially, right? Yeah. So tennis is played outdoors, so... Extrinsic. It's the extrinsic pathway. Yeah. And so any factors that are in the extrinsic pathway, particularly, I mean, mainly factor seven, right? Mm -hmm. um, or tissue, um, tissue activator factors mm -hmm. are important. Yeah. So if factor seven is affected, then your PT might be changed. So INR 
is stands for internationalized normalized ratios and it measures um, I think it's derived from PT if I'm not mistaken yeah exactly right so it's the patient's PT level divided by a normal PT level multiply oh, sorry, to the square of a particular cofactor so let's say the lab conditions mm-hmm. the the factors that that particular lab uses yeah so it's a it's, it's used so that people can internationally compare other patients pt times exactly because what we mentioned what we need to mention is that aptt and pt really depend on the lab or the pathology that uh, the pathology lab that is testing this result yeah. but inr is standardized across the world so if your patient has an inr 2.3 and you go elsewhere and they have an IR 2.5, you yep. know that you know something is going on and it's not due to changes in their um, laboratory standards. Mm-hmm. So the higher the INR, the thinner or the longer it takes for a clot to form. That's essentially what it means. So yes. if you're treating a patient with warfarin, often you're looking at an INR of 2 to 3. So their um, That's the blood time. is almost twice or three times thinner or less able to form clots than a normal patient. So that's the um, two to three is the usual target range. Yes, for that's the target range yeah. for INR. So before um, we finish off this discussion about lab, what I think it's important for us to talk about mixing studies. Yeah. So what's that all about? That was a bit confusing, but so essentially what I got from it was that mixing studies is when let's say somebody has a problem with their their blood clotting or something mm-hmm. like that, and so you mix it with a normal person. You supplement it with like a normal level. So you mix in, let's say, a normal level of plasma and the clotting factors. And then you look at whether if the clotting problems still occur or whether if they actually go away. So essentially what this test does is that it's a differential to see whether if the clotting problems are due to a deficiency. In the factors. Or in in the factors, or if it's due to an inhibitor in, in the body. So how that works is that, let's say, you have an inhibitor that's going to kill off or target one of your clotting factors, kill it off, and so it then you have problems with your clotting cascade. If you give an external source or a supplement source of more clotting factors, but you don't really correct the inhibitors that's present in it, you're going to still have that problem. Yeah. Whereas in a person who has a deficiency, want the moment you supplement it with additional clotting factors, that's going to fix it up and the person's clotting time is going to go back to normal. Exactly. That's such a good way of putting it. Um, yeah, so that's it. The key, they're the th- four key things we need to know. APTT, table tennis played indoors. Mm-hmm. PT, tennis plays out, uh, is played outdoors. INR and mixing studies. Yeah. I think that's it for thrombophilia. Mm-hmm. Guys, stay tuned for our next episode. We're going to finish off this whole blood talk by um, talking about hemophilia. And that's another interesting talk. Um, so stay tuned for our next episode. Yeah, thank you. And, and if, you're, if you like what you're listening to, please subscribe um, and uh, please share it with other medical students. And obviously visit our website for notes and any, um, any additional information that you might need. Thank you for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to our Common Rounds podcast. You can find all of our episodes, notes, elective experiences, and much more content on our website. So come visit us at thecommonrounds.wordpress.com. And see you next time.